the thing that no eye has ever seen, no ear has ever heard, no mind has fully comprehended is none other than the Holy Spirit who now resides in the Christian, lives in your heart, and do you not recognize the profound implication of what that means for us today? Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul addresses serious problems in the church that we still deal with in our day. And through this series, we're also learning how we can live for Christ even as we're tempted to live for ourselves. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And now here's this week's message. For those of you who grew up either reading or watching the Harry Potter series, you know that in Hogwarts Castle, there was a secret room called the Room of Requirement. And it was filled with secret things and hidden things. And getting into the room was in and of itself a trick. Because you first had to believe in the room and then you kind of had to seek permission to get inside of the room. And if you didn't know the room existed, you couldn't get in. And the, the mantra, the way of explaining that went a little bit like this. If you have to ask, you'll never know. And if you know, you need only ask. Are you confused yet? The reason why I share this little story with you is because there are moments in time when we read passages of Scripture that elude us, and we read it, and we reread it, and we go, what did I just read? I have no clue what I just read. And then there's other times where maybe it's confusing initially, and then someone explains it to you, and then you sit back and you go, okay, I get what it means, but now what does it mean for me? And that pretty much summarizes 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So if you got a Bible, I want to encourage you to find that, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. While you're looking for that, let me just give you the context for everything that we've learned in chapter 1 by citing just one verse, the last verse in chapter 1, verse 17, when the Apostle Paul says this, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So Paul is uh, writing a letter to a little church with some big problems. Big problems. Most historians say that this little church had 50, 60, 70, certainly no more than 100 members in this church. And they were banging their heads on all sorts of things. And so in this tiny little letter, the Apostle Paul is seeking to give an instruction, but he wants to give them first things first. He wants them to recognize the primacy of the gospel. If you want to have the courage of your convictions to move forward, if you want to be able to withstand the cultural pressures of the day, if you want to be firmly rooted in who God is, here's what it's going to take, an understanding of the gospel that Jesus Christ died for you. That's where it all starts. And then he goes from there talking about something that is very strange and enigmatic and confusing to understand. He starts talking about secret things and hidden mysteries. So start with me at verse 6 of chapter 2. These words. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. But the wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that, was, that has been hidden 
and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would have not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. So, what's Paul talking about? What are these secret things and these hidden mysteries? Paul says, listen, here, here's, here's what you've got to know. Here's what I want to tell you. It's, it's secret wisdom. It's a hidden mystery. No eye has seen it. No ear has ever heard of it. No mind has fully comprehended it. It's secret wisdom. What? What? What's he talking about? Like, is this some sort of like Da Vinci Code stuff? Is this kind of like the, the national treasure kind of stuff? Or like some sort of conspiracy where, you know, if you add the fifth consonant of every word and the third vowel of every word, then it creates a new truth, a new secret hidden truth, and the hidden truth is revealed. What is he talking about? Secret wisdom, hidden things. In reading this chapter growing up, uh, the words always eluded me. It was hard for me to understand. I didn't understand it. Now, admittedly, I'm a little bit more skeptical by nature, probably because of my upbringing, uh, going from church to church to church, being exposed to a lot of uh, name it and claim it theology. My mom's idea of a good weekend is watching the whole Left Behind series a couple of times and, you know, Y2K and end of the world predictions and all those kinds of things. And so I was always very skeptical of hidden things, secret things. And then once I discovered the gospel for what it was, I fell in love with it because what I discovered is that Jesus is just so transparent. He lives life in the open. You know, whether uh, you are a Christian or an agnostic or an atheist or part of a different religion, no one questions the historicity of Jesus. His ministry was so public Everyone recognizes that there's a man named Jesus Christ of Nazareth who lived, who ministered, and who died on a tree. And even after his resurrection, pulling off Easter, literally hundreds of people witnessed this, and they wrote the gospel in the time in which that generation lived. Do you know what that means? That means people can go back and refute it. Like, if you want to create a good conspiracy book, you got to wait at least a couple of generations. Then you write the book, because then no one's alive to actually refute it. But all these words are written within the lifetime of the original listeners and hearers and readers. So, admittedly, when I look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and I hear about hidden things and hidden mysteries and secret wisdom, I get a little bit standoffish. And I say, what's all this about? Clearly, there's something here that I don't fully understand. And, and maybe you feel the same way. So let's look at this a little bit. What is this wisdom of God? Here's the first thing that I put in your note sheet. The wisdom of God here is not of this world. It's not of this world. Look again at verse 6, if your Bibles are open. It says this, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. So he's making a comparison or a contrasting statement that there is a wisdom that the world supposes. 
kings and princes and world leaders and even people today, they'll claim a certain wisdom, an inherent wisdom that they know that does not derive from the word of God and it brings them to nothing. It brings them to nothing. Human wisdom brings us to nothing. And then number two, the wisdom of God is not what anyone expected. No one expected this. Look at verse eight. It says, none of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Once they saw it, they didn't understand it. And then look at verse nine, continues, however, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. Now, honestly, when, when I heard this passage of scripture recited when I was growing up, it was often in reference to heaven, right? It's talking about heaven. No eye has seen it. No ear has heard it. No, no mind has fully comprehended. It's talking about heaven. One day we'll be in heaven. One day we'll see. But, but that is not what the apostle Paul is talking about. Not at all. Um, if you're taking notes this morning, I would encourage you to write down Isaiah chapter 64, verses 1 to 5. This is precisely what Paul is quoting. He's quoting an Old Testament text. You can go read the whole context later. But in essence, the prophet Isaiah is communicating to God, and he's saying, God, I, I want you to reveal yourself to the nations. I want you to show us your plan. I, I want to know and understand why you do the things that you do and why you allow things like this to happen. What's your plan? What's your goal? What's your motivation? I can't see you. I can't touch you. You're not tangible. And then within that context, he says this, oh, that you would come down and the mountains would tremble before you. Come down, make yourself known to your enemies. Cause the nations to quake before you. And then he says, no eye has seen you, no ear has heard you, no mind has fully known you. That's what Paul is quoting. That's what he's referencing. And then he says this in verse 10. Verse 10, he says, these are the things God has revealed to us by his what? Help me out. What's the word? His spirit. By his spirit. So what is he saying? He continues in verse 11. He says in verse 11, for, those, for who knows a person's thoughts? accept their own spirit within them. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given to us. So what is this secret wisdom that no one understood and no one still to this day understands fully? I put it this way in your note sheet, the word of God, the wisdom of God is none other than the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Paul says the thing that no eye has ever seen, no ear has ever heard, no mind has fully comprehended is none other than the Holy Spirit who now resides in the Christian, lives in your heart, and do you not recognize the profound implication of what that means for us today? In fact, this is what we read in John chapter 14. Jesus says this. 
But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I have said to you. I have told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe. Now, I know, I know. Not really what we expected. Maybe a bit of a letdown. You know, no, no new secret his wisdom, right? No new conspiracy or new written word that no one's ever seen before. It's just the, the plain old Holy Spirit, something we've known for a long, long time. Now, maybe some of you, admittedly, are pretty pumped up about this, but, but isn't it sad that we don't get as amped up as the Apostle Paul about the reality that the Holy Spirit lives and resides in the Christian. And if that's the case, what it means is we have not yet plumbed the depths of what it means and all of its implications that the Holy Spirit resides in the Christian. That we still don't fully understand what it means. Because Paul is not the kind of person who is underwhelmed by this. He is overwhelmed by this. So much so, every single time he talks about the Holy Spirit in his letters, in his epistles, he's kind of like a kid at a candy store. He gets giddy. He gets excited. He's filled with enthusiasm. Let me give you one more example of this. There's many, but Colossians chapter 1, verse 26, it says... The mystery that has been kept hidden from ages and generations is now disclosed. Where? To the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his mystery, which is Christ in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Paul tells the church in Colossae. He tells the church in Corinth. He tells the church in Galatia. He tells the church in Thessalonica. Do you want to hear something amazing? Something that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has fully comprehended? The Holy Spirit, the same Spirit of God that used to reside in the Holy of Holies within the temple, now lives in you. Isn't that amazing? So in those moments when you feel down and out, when you feel lonely, when you feel depressed, when you feel like you're banging your head on all the same issues over and over and over again, here's the good news. God has given you his Holy Spirit to sustain you and to build you up and to reveal to you God's righteous intentions in your life and in his world. And then, again, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of who Paul is talking to. He's talking to a bunch of Christians in the city of Corinth, a place that today makes Las Vegas look a little bit like an Amish community, filled with sin, filled with sexual immorality of all kinds that we can't even imagine. And here's, you can imagine in your mind, a, a young man walking down the cobblestone steps in Corinth, and on his way, there's a bunch of guys on the side just in front of the temple of Aphrodite saying, it's half off day. Make sure you get right with Aphrodite. Why don't you come on in? Why don't you come on in? We're sure there's a lady of night just for you. And unlike all the times before, he reminds himself, I've taken that offer so many times. But on this day, he puts his head down and he keeps walking. And he walks a couple of miles down the cobblestone steps until he finally gets to a tiny little home he goes inside, and there's a couple of dozen Christians 
all of them feeling overwhelmed with the burdens of life. He slumps down in his chair, and he's hoping, he's praying, that the pastor will say something, anything, that will alleviate the heavy burden that he feels upon his heart. The temptations that he's trying to overcome, the feeling of failure that he just keeps banging his head on all the same stuff. And he prays, Lord, give me the strength that I need. Am I cut out for this? Am I able to carry on? The pastor gets up to the lectern, and he's just about to speak. And then and there, a young boy bursts through the front doors. He runs to the front, and he gives a piece of parchment paper to the pastor. The pastor opens it up. They're whispering to each other. He starts reading the opening paragraphs of whatever is written on the top. And the more he reads, the more his eyes enlightened. He rolls it back closed. He says, everyone, everyone, listen. This is a letter from the Apostle Paul. And there's murmurs of, of excitement in the crowd. And he says, let me read this. And he begins to read. And it goes a little bit like this. The pastor starts reading the letter. Paul starts off talking about how he's heard about just how messed up this church is. And they're all like, mm, yeah. And then he starts talking about how there are divisions among them. He says, there's like 50 of you and there's 51 different divisions. And they're like, mm, yeah. And then he says, there's things that you gotta figure out. And they're like, yeah, that's fair. Tell us something we don't know, Paul. Tell us something we don't know. And then he says, Paul says, let me tell you about this secret wisdom, this hidden wisdom that no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no mind has fully known. Listen, Christian, the Holy Spirit lives in you. He will give you what you need. He will lead you and guide you. He will strengthen and sustain you. And can you imagine those words in the eyes and the mind of a Roman or a Jew in the first century? It would have been craziness. Let me, let me just show this to you. In, in the eyes of the Greco-Roman world, the kinds of gods that they were familiar with are Zeus and Poseidon and Aphrodite, these great, larger-than-life gods and goddesses who kind of just wind up the clock of life and then let it go. They don't have any interest in mere human beings. They have no interest in what we're doing. They just kind of play with us. Kind of like the, the same way that a five-year-old kid might pick up an ant, you know, and then you pluck off each of the legs of the ant, and then you lay down the ant on the ground, and it's, you know, wriggling around, and then you get the magnifying glass, and you bring the power of the sun upon it until it cooks, or so some kids have told me. Right, that's what, that's their vision of these Greco-Roman gods. They're mighty, they're powerful, but they, they don't associate with humans, they have no interest in us. They have no thought about us. And even if you went down to the Jewish synagogue, let's talk about the Jews. If you went to the Jewish synagogue and you heard about the great God, Yahweh, what would they talk about? The power of God, the magnificence of God, the glory of God. They would tell you stories about when Yahweh, their God, brought the nation of Egypt down to its knees. 
and they brought upon it 10 plagues and the people of Israel were able to leave freely. And then God parted the Red Sea, the Sea of Reeds, so that they could walk through on dry ground. And when the Egyptians tried to come after them, God engulfed them in the waters. Or the time in which they were standing before the great, magnificent walls of Jericho, and they went do-do-do-do, and everything went and it fell to the ground by the power. They would talk about one of their forefathers, Moses, when Moses says, hey, God, I would love to behold your glory. And God basically said, "Mm, you you can't handle my glory. Like, if you saw my glory, you'd blow up. We just can't have it. So here's what I'll do, Moses. Uh, You can hide behind the cleft of a rock, and there's going to be a tiny little sliver of space you're going to be able to see through. And then I'm going to walk by, and all you're going to see is my hind parts, whatever that means. You're going to see my hind parts. And that's exactly what happened. The presence of God went across. He witnessed the hind parts of God. He goes down the mountain and he's filled with the radiance and the glory of God. So much so that the entire nation of Israel said, Moses, we don't want to look at you. Can you wear one of those like dog things? Can you wear one of those covers? We don't want to see you. You're freaking us out. So no, we cannot experience The glory of God. There's no possible way that the Holy Spirit could live in us. We'd explode. That's what would happen. So much so, you you have to think in your mind about the temple. Our Jewish brothers and sisters, to this day, would love to rebuild the temple. But what was the temple in the Old Testament? We have a picture of this. I I want you to take a look at this picture that we have. This temple right here was enormous. I know it's Super Bowl Sunday today, and so in the spirit of Super Bowl Sunday, you could fit 20, 20 different uh, football stadiums in this thing. That's how big it was. But if you can see all those outer layers on the outside, everything that's exposed by the sun, that's what's called the Gentile court. One thing we see is this temple is filled with barriers filled with barriers so let's take a look at the next picture and this shows the inside so you can see on the top and the bottom that's the gentile court that's the outside if you look on the right side this way for you uh, if you look on the right side you will see the women's court and women who were part of the people of israel they could only go there and go no further on the left side on the outer rim you can see what is called the court of Israel. So all male Jewish people could go no further than that. They can go any further than the exterior portion. Then even on the inside, if you were a devoted priest and you devoted your life to the priestly ministry, you could go into the priest court, but no further. No further. And maybe if you rose in the ranks as you devoted your life to the priestly ministry, from time to time, you could go to the holy place just outside the Holy of Holies. And then finally, 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 the Holy of Holies. And this is a place in which you had to be the great high priest. And even if you were a high priest, you could live out all your days and never go into the Holy of Holies. One man could go in one day a year at Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and he would make sacrifice for himself and for the, the, all the people of Israel. One day a year, one man, that's it. And even when he went in, they had to tie a rope around him 
as he walked in because he's going before the kabod, the glory of God, and if God doesn't like what he sees, he's gonna get smited down, then they're gonna be like, how do we go get him? Uh-oh. So if you got a rope tied around him, you can go, oops, it didn't work for you. Sorry about that. So they just had to make sure that they could get him out. That's it. So it's filled, absolutely filled with restrictions. So once again, like, can, can you see now why a Roman Jew named Paul gets excited when he hears about the Holy Spirit living and residing in us? In us? It was unfathomable, beyond comprehension. And so let's just hang on to that thought for a second. Then comes along Jesus. And Jesus is meek and mild, and, and he doesn't fit the mold with respect to the Greco-Roman ideology of what a God is supposed to be like, or even the Jewish interpretation of what their God would be like when the Messiah would come, when he would overthrow the Roman authorities and kind of like Jericho, cause the entire nation to turn into rubble and to fall down and for them to take their place as sanctified priests in the world. But Jesus comes along and he's meek and mild and the apostle Peter says he's not much to look at. You know, he's not chiseled and beautiful and all those things. He's not very attractive. He's not tanned and groomed and all those kinds of things. He doesn't fit the mold. He doesn't fit the mold. And it grieves the heart of Paul. And I think that's something that still resonates with us today. I did a little bit of a research this week, and outside of the movies made by James Cameron, do you know that the five most successful movies in terms of domestic box office earnings are all superhero films? Avengers Endgame, Avengers the other one, can't remember the name, Spider-Man, Black Panther, Star Wars. All of them superhero films. And you think about what's going on in these stories, right? Avengers, you got Thor, you know, you got Iron Man. They're filled with strength and power and they can overcome the bad guys. And you got Spider-Man and he's got his sixth sense and he can leap over tall buildings and he can beat up all the bad guys. And I just got to take a really quick sidebar for my buddy, Pastor Jason here. I love you, man. You're good. But one thing that you've noticed is that Superman's not on that list because Spider-Man is better than Superman. I'm sorry, buddy. God bless you. <laughs> but here's what I think we should take note of. We take all of our favorite superheroes over Jesus. In terms of what delights us. In terms of what excites us. Because yeah, Jesus, you know, he, he was able to walk on water. And from time to time, you know, he fed people and he healed the lame and he healed the leper, but he didn't fit the mold. And worst of all, he was easily killable. He doesn't fit the mold. And so Paul is talking to this little church that's filled with Greco-Romans, Greeks and Romans, who love the idea of Zeus and Poseidon, and he says... Did you miss it? He's talking to God-fearing Jews now turned Christians who are anticipating the great God Yahweh will come in power and bring the nation of Rome down to its knees. And he says, did you miss it? 
He's talking to this tiny little church that's filled and overcome with burdens of life, with weakness, with frailty. And he says to them, have you missed it? And he says to a church in Abbotsford, British Columbia, that's banging their head on many of the same issues. And he's asking us, have you missed it? Have you missed the reality that the Holy Spirit of God, the one who knit you together in your mother's womb, the creator of the universe, lives and resides in you? I love reading uh, Matthew 27. This is the story of Jesus on the cross. And it has an exact reference to what Paul is alluding to in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Here's what happens. This is the end of Jesus' time on the cross. It says this, and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. He gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn into two from top to bottom. Why is it important to reference the curtain being torn from top to bottom as opposed to bottom to top? Because we know that there was a great earthquake that took place. And when an earthquake happens, everything pulls from the bottom to the top. But this is a reflection that God is the one who has ripped the veil in two. What was the purpose of the curtain? To separate the broken, sinful people of God from the glorious, perfect, righteous presence of God. But now that Jesus has paid the penalty, the price of sin and death, the barrier has been removed. It's been removed so that we can be and abide with God. And so that's why Paul gets so excited. And we're eventually going to get to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when Paul tells us this is the reason why we need to try to walk in righteousness, not so that we can earn our salvation. Jesus has paid for that, but so that we can walk with Christ and abide in him and be in his presence. And so he says this, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is within you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. I want to very quickly identify a couple of myths that are still alive and well today. I, I'm in love with the Reformation. When Martin Luther came and he wrote the 95 Theses, and I've shared with you already before that the reason the Reformation was so foundational to the people of God during that time was not just the finer points of doctrine, but it was this radical idea that every human being is a sanctified priest, that we represent Christ, we have access to Christ, and that the Holy Spirit lives in us. And so we have a couple of myths that I think are still alive and well today in the church. One of them is what I like to call the holy place myth. The holy place myth is the idea that the Holy Spirit, when the curtain was torn into two, it left the temple and it just came to churches. And now the Spirit of God is only in the four walls of this building, right? And that's why we say, here's the church, here's the steeple inside, here's all the people, right? But really, what we should be saying is, here's a building, here's a steeple, and inside, here's the church, people who are filled with the Holy Spirit of God, and so that leads to the second myth. There's the holy place myth. There's also the holy person myth. What's that? The holy person myth is that the person up here on this stage, that's me right now, I'm the holy person. 
I'm the priest, I'm the pastor, and you're all secular people. And you do your secular things. And you know, you, you work, you farm, you teach, you run real estate, you run a business, you, you run stuff. And then if you do a really good job, you raise enough money and you bring it to the church so we can do more holy stuff. But that is not the case. We have to remove the sacred secular divide and to realize that we are all, all of us are sanctified priests. We represent Christ. We have access to Christ. And we are endowed with the Holy Spirit of Christ. Do we recognize what that means? So just like last week, for the rest of our time, I want us to roll up our sleeves and ask ourselves, what does it look like, practically speaking, to live this out on a day-to-day basis? And rather than tell you, I would like to show you. Um, I've done some rendition of this a couple of years ago, but it was during COVID, and none of you were here, and I was all alone by myself, and you were in your pajamas. And so I, I want to flesh out something I've done with you before, but I want to draw out some more implications of it today. So today, I brought along some things, some cool, fun things. We'll get to this guy in a bit. Here's a glove. Here's my Bible. I learned this from a teacher by the name of Billy Strackham. It's a magic trick, and I want to teach it all to you. I'm going to get this glove right here to pick up my Bible. Yeah, I know. You should be saying, ooh, ah, amazing. Make sure we got space. You all see? You all see this? All right, but I need some crowd participation in order for this to happen, especially uh, for those of you, grade four, five, six, seven, eight. Um, I need your help. We need to say with as much energy and gusto, glove, pick up the Bible. And then the glove's going to do it. So I need all of you to do it, but especially young people, I, I need your energy for this. Can you help me with this? Here we go. Three, two, one. Glove, pick up the Bible. Well, that's, that's embarrassing. Hold, hold on, hold on. What? Okay, so he said, you're too quiet. I'm just the messenger, okay? He said, there needs to be more energy. And then he'd be willing to do this, but only if there's more energy and enthusiasm in what you're about to say. Okay, so here we go. Second time. Three, two, one. Glove, pick up the Bible. (gasps) Oh, my goodness. What an amazing glove. And when Billy Strackham did this for the first time, a little kid in the front said to him, that's not the glove. That's your hand inside the glove. And he said, exactly. Exactly. Let me share a passage of scripture with you. This comes from John chapter 15, verse 5. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. And so I put it this way in your note sheet. The reason why we have the Holy Spirit is so that we can bear good fruit. So that we can bear good fruit. And you know, like... I feel like 1 Corinthians 2 and John chapter 15, these are the kind of passages that we give lip service to, but do we really believe it, like deep in our bones? Do we believe it with energy and enthusiasm and gusto that the creator of the universe lives in us? Like we might say things like, okay, I get it. Apart from Christ, I can't do the big stuff, the super duper duper important stuff. I can't bring someone to know Jesus. Right? I can't cause my salvation. But there's plenty of things that I can do. 
But I, I went back this week and I checked the Greek of John 15, verse 5. And I checked out that word nothing. Do you know what the Greek word nothing means? It means nothing. You're welcome. I'll be here all week. It means nothing, nothing of eternal significance. That God is the one who made our bodies, he made our intellect, he made our mind, he made our lungs. He put together the world in such a way that it's fashioned so that we can live and breathe and have our being. He gave us our intellect so that we can interact with the world. And he sends us our Holy Spirit so that we can discern the will of God. God gave us everything that we need. And apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Nothing. So let's just try this on for size for a moment here. Let's just pretend that this glove right here is me or you. We'll just call it Jim Bob. Here's Jim Bob without the Holy Spirit. And here's Venom. Thank you for my children letting me borrow their stuff. And Venom in this moment, he represents Satan and his minions and the power and dominion of darkness. And so we're going to start a little fight here between Jim Bob without the Holy Spirit and Satan and his minions, like an MMA fight. It's so fun. You're all here to watch. Here we go. Three, two, one, fight. This is how I play with toys. <laughs> I'm getting old. All right, I gotta go get my glove now. So as you can see, Jesus says, if you abide in me and I in you, I will produce good fruit in you. And apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing of eternal significance. You can do nothing. But then the Apostle Paul tells us, that because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, the veil was torn into two, the curse was broken, we can now enter into the presence of God once again. And not only that, Jesus Christ sent his Holy Spirit to live and reside in us so that we can discern the will of God, we can have the mind of God, we can grow in faithfulness and obedience and righteousness precisely because the Holy Spirit lives in us. Not because of anything that we've done at all, but because the Holy Spirit lives in us. You know, we, we think of what the catechism says. Do you know what my heart says? That I will hate God and my neighbor. That's what my heart does. It's filled with deceit. It is filled with evil. And even if Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, apart from the intervention of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says we would never choose him because we're so filled with pride and so filled with arrogance, we would always choose our own way. I would not say I want to follow the will of Jesus. I'm going to say I'm going to follow the will of Justin. Because we all know the world revolves around me. But Jesus says, I'm going to take that heart of stone. I'm going to turn it into a heart of flesh. So let's try this on for size. Round two. Here's Jim Bob. Filled with the Holy Spirit. And here's Satan and his minions and the dominion of darkness. Jim Bob comes up and he says, he looks a little bit different than he did last time, but it's still the same dude I beat up last time. Three, two, one, fight. Huzzah! Jesus says, if you abide in me and I in you, I will produce good fruit in you. 
Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Paul wants us to realize this because I think there's, there's two profound implications I want to leave you with this week as you imagine me beating up toys. Here's what I want you to be thinking about, two things. Number one, the, perhaps the reason why we ask ourselves, even though we're walking with Jesus, where's the joy? Where's the peace? Where's the contentment that's been promised? Maybe the reason why is because when we face those temptations in our own lives and we succumb to those temptations, what we're doing is we are dragging the Holy Spirit through the mud with us. It grieves the Spirit of God and he flees from those moments because he cannot associate with evil. He cannot associate with evil. And so if we want to see the Holy Spirit working and moving within our hearts, there is a call to obedience. Not for the sake of our salvation. Jesus paid for that. For the sake of our relationship with Jesus, to abide in him, to love him, to walk with him. Picturing in our mind the, the road of discipleship. Jesus is walking, I'm walking with him. And the reputation I receive is the dust of your rabbi Jesus is all over you because you're following Jesus and you're walking with him. That's the first implication. And here's the second one. Even in the midst of our sin, thinking back to this little church that's banging their head on everything, struggling with the realities of life, struggling with sin, struggling with temptations, the promise that Paul gives them. Do you notice where he goes? The very first two things he talks about. Number one, I will bring you the gospel and the gospel alone. Jesus Christ has paid for your debt. And then number two, here's the great mystery. The Holy Spirit lives in you. And there's nothing nothing that you can do to be taken out of the palm of God's hands. He's got you. He's got you. Do you believe that? To the extent that you believe that, you will have much joy. You've been listening to the latest message in our First Corinthians series focused on learning godly solutions to the problem of sin in our lives. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.